creation comes to his final work when he creates man. And in Genesis 1.26, it said, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God created mankind for one and only one purpose, and that was to have authority over the earth. <clears throat> now, we, I don't know that we usually think in these terms, but consider what this creation was when God finished doing all the things that he did. It says at the end of the sixth day, God looked at everything and saw that it was very good. Very good means perfect. And then it tells us that he rested on the Sabbath day. But when God created man he created him to have authority and not to be subject to the circumstances of the earth everything was perfect and so therefore we can say that it was the kingdom of God on the earth it was the kingdom that God created he created it according to his characteristics of mercy and love there was no shortage of anything man was completely provided for so why did God tell him to subdue it there was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind there was nothing no way for Adam and Eve to hurt themselves or to be hurt in any way whatsoever the Bible says that God came down in the cool of the day and walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. If man was created for the purpose, the single purpose, and you can't find anything else in the Bible that contradicts this, if you created him for the single purpose of, ha of having authority on the earth, then wouldn't it stand to reason... <clears throat> that during those cool-of-the-day meetings that God had with Adam and Eve, that he would share with them his purpose and their purpose on the earth. We know how authority is used or exercised, and the creation account gives us an example, actually ten different examples, where God said for something to happen, and it happened. And so we would know, I think it certainly goes beyond an assumption, but we know, therefore, that God had 
proven or taught Adam and Eve how authority was used, how authority was executed. They knew that it was executed by the words of their mouth. In the same way that God said, let there be light, and light was, he gave Adam and Eve, and through them, all of mankind, the knowledge of how to operate in that authority. You were created to have authority on the earth. You were not created to be subject to circumstance. You were not created to be led by circumstance. You were not created to operate as best you could in the world that fell into the dominion of sin and, and spiritual death. When God talked to Adam and Eve, he would have to have shown them and told them and taught them why they were here. It's important for us to recognize that even in man, man's unfallen state, in his righteous existence that came about through God imparting his own spirit into him, he breathed into him and the Bible says man became a living soul. But even in that circumstance, it's necessary to speak God's word, to use our authority by speaking God's word, to maintain the blessings and the will of God in our lives. Now we know the story, how that man fell, disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden fruit. And the Bible says spiritual death began to reign over the earth from the moment that they disobeyed God and fell. And so God begins to interact with mankind. He gives him the law to prove to man that you can't maintain righteousness on your own. But he promised him a savior. He promised Adam and Eve and all of mankind from that point forward a Messiah, a Redeemer. Now, folks, when Jesus comes on the scene, what is his purpose? Well, his purpose is to redeem mankind from spiritual death, to bring to him eternal life. How's he going to accomplish that? I think most of the church world, and I, I realize that I did for a long time, longer than I should have, but I think most Christians have the idea in some form or another that Jesus came to the earth to prove that he was the son of God. But there, was, there are countless examples given to us where Jesus told people not to say that he was the Messiah. Where someone would claim their belief that he was the son of God and he would tell them don't tell that 
we find in many occasions where Jesus sent his disciples out into cities that he had not yet come to to prepare the way for his coming. And in those examples, it tells us one after another that they preached the gospel of the kingdom. And as they preached the gospel of the kingdom, they began to do signs and wonders in his name. And that was the way they prepared for his ministry into new cities. I think it's important for us to recognize that the Bible instructs us, gives us instruction for us to know and recognize the character and the nature of God and how he operates, to see his goodness in action. And one of the ways that we see that is by Jesus' beginning of his ministry. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. It says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. If you backed up a few verses in this chapter, you'll find out that Jesus has been anointed by the Holy Ghost when he was baptized in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily shape as a dove. He immediately went into the wilderness and separated himself from all contact and from anything else that's going on in the world for 40 days. He was tempted of the devil out there. He defeated the devil's temptations. And then he comes and begins his ministry. And the way he begins his ministry, the Holy Spirit tells us, is that he began preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of God's will for you on this earth. And he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. It tells us about him uh, bringing in four of his disciples. Skip down with me to verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine. I want you to realize how many times we're going to see that, folks. They were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine just means teaching. They were astonished at his doctrine. Now here's the Holy Ghost account of what took place. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. You see that last phrase, as one that had authority? That phrase comes from two Greek words. One word, the first word means how, and the second word means to hold. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. He taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Now, folks, if we put these verses together, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have authority over the work of our hands. If we join that with what the Bible says Jesus did in beginning his ministry, they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them how to hold authority. It tells us, it reveals to us that Jesus began his earthly ministry 
by bringing man back to his original purpose. Bringing man back to God's original plan for mankind. Now that makes perfect sense if we think about it in these terms. Because Jesus is trying to restore mankind. The redemption of Jesus, the redemption of mankind through the work of Jesus on the cross, the shedding of his blood, was intended to restore man. Well, what in the world did man need restoring to more than God's original purpose? God's purpose hadn't changed. He never changes. So the thousands of years between Genesis 1 and Mark chapter 1 show us that God's purpose is still the same for man as it always was. I think partly, or maybe mostly, because mankind is ignorant of God's original purpose. He's unknowing concerning the things that God planned for mankind that the thought or the idea, even though we see it written in the scriptures time after time, the thought of man having authority is so far removed from the way that people think of God, the way people see the work of Jesus, and the lack of understanding that God has for his family here on the earth which we know of as the church. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them how to hold authority. And not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit that had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch they had questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Notice that they credited his doctrine for the results of the unclean spirit departing from the man. They say, in effect, we've never heard anything like this. What new thing is this? Well, folks, I would submit to you that it's not supposed to be a new thing. I would submit to you that God intended for mankind to know that he had authority here on the earth, which is why he began by teaching and telling Adam everything about his position after God created him. What new thing is this? It's not a new thing to realize or come to the revelation that man has authority or has been given authority on the earth. We don't see too many examples of that, unfortunately. We don't see too many examples, public examples of the execution of authority, even though God's plan has never changed for mankind. 
What new thing is this? What new doctrine is this? Why were they blown away by this? Because nobody had ever taught like this that Jesus did. Nobody ever taught that man was given authority, that man's purpose on the earth was to have authority. And when somebody comes along exercising that authority and teaching that man has authority and then proves it through signs and wonders and miracles, that was not intended on God's part, per se, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. It was sent, he was sent to the earth to prove that God's plan for man had never been changed. Let us create man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have authority over the work of our hands. I want you to look with me now to Luke chapter 4. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke's account. The preceding verses in this chapter talk about the same things that we referred to in Mark. He's baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost descends on him in bodily shape as a dove. He goes into the wilderness where he's tempted of the devil. And after 40 days, it tells us in verse 14, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. First thing Jesus says in fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. It's what we know of as Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Jesus said, I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is what being anointed means. I've been empowered to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, we know that gospel means good news. So Jesus is saying, I am empowered to preach the good news to the poor. What good news is there for the poor that God doesn't want them poor? Every one of these things that Jesus is talking about and refers to from Isaiah's prophecy involves a change. A change to bring man out from under the, the dominion and the bondage of circumstance. And to change circumstances to line up with God's plan for man. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me or empowered me to preach the gospel to the poor. To preach the good news that God doesn't want the poor to be poor. Or to stay poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. This word brokenhearted means a breach in spirit. It's talking about the covenant or the contract that God had made with man. That if we keep his words and obey his commandments, he'll take sickness away from the midst of us. 
In other words, Jesus says that part of what he's anointed to do is to exercise authority over sickness and disease. All of these things have to do with authority, folks. He has sent me to preach deliverance to the captives. What's the good news to those who are captive? God doesn't want you to stay captive. And so the authority of man is sufficient to rule over captivity of every type. Again, Jesus is saying, I have authority. I have been sent from heaven and empowered by heaven to exercise authority over the things of the earth that hold man bound. He's been empowered and sent to preach the recovering of sight to the blind. The good news is that God doesn't want the blind to be blind. Now, folks, it's hard to understand when you think in these terms. It's hard to understand how Christians can take the position that sickness and disease or blindness or even poverty are sent by God for some unseen spiritual purpose. When so many of these things that people attribute, the modern day church at least, attributes to the work of God again for some unseen or unforeseen purpose is in direct contradiction to what God sent Jesus here on the earth to accomplish. In other words, if God didn't want the blind to be blind, then it would be important for us to recognize that Jesus was his agent to remove that blindness. But if Jesus is here on the earth to preach recovering of sight to the blind and those blind are blind because God made them blind, then Jesus is working in contrast, working contrary to the will of God. Which means he's a, a, a fake redeemer. Which means he's an unrighteous man whose blood would not be holy and serve as the proper substitute for man. Anything you see Jesus conquering in his earthly ministry cannot be from God and therefore has to be from the devil. So he says, I'm empowered or anointed to preach recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Again, he's talking about people that are bound by spiritual death and by the work of Satan in their lives or their bodies. To set at liberty them that are bruised. And in verse 19, he adds to Isaiah's prophecy by saying to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. We know that to be the year of Jubilee when every man is restored to his lost possessions 
from the point in time that Jesus came to the earth through the church age to our present day is the year of Jubilee where everything that was taken away from us as far as physical things, poverty, for example, everything that has to do with sickness and disease that holds man bound, everything that came about as the work of the devil through the fall of man in the Garden of Eden is restored back to man. In other words, God resets man with the original purpose to exercise authority in the earth. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, Isaiah's prophecy is not some far off thing. From this point forward, these scriptures are fulfilled. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Folks, I want you to realize that the graciousness of his words are recognized by the people in the synagogue in Nazareth. And as a result, they have a choice. And it's the same choice that is always presented to us whenever the word of God is spoken. And that is, are we going to believe what we heard? Or are we going to reject it? They rejected it because they thought they knew Jesus' father. They bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? See, they knew that the virgin birth was to be associated with the Messiah. But because Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost, but because they knew Joseph was his earthly father, not the origin of his coming into the world. But God was kind and gracious and merciful enough to give Jesus an earthly, uh, an earthly father while he was here. They thought that that meant he could not be the Messiah. And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. So he's already been to Capernaum. He's already done signs and wonders and miracles there. We'll see evidence of that as we go a little bit further. So here's a guy that they reject because they know his father and assume that Joseph is his biological father, which he wasn't. So based on that, based on what they thought they knew, they missed out on the kingdom of God coming to pass in their lives and in their city. And he said, Verily I say unto thee, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, 
when the heaven was shut up three days, or three years and six months, and when great famine went throughout the land. But none of them was Elijah sent, save the woman, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. Well, let's go ahead and read verse 28. And all they that were in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. What did Jesus say that made them so upset? Well, he recounts the historical record of Elijah. And how he operated when, during the three and a half years of famine or drought. He talks about him going into, we know he starts off by sitting by the brook of Cherith. And he's fed by the ravens. Then he's sent to Sarepta, a city of Sidon, under the widow woman and was sustained there. And then he tells about Elisha, who brought about the cleansing of Naaman from leprosy. Now, here's the reason that he gives these examples and makes these examples. Because even though these were prophets, it was still necessary for them to exercise faith in what God had told them in order to maintain the kingdom of God operating in their lives in order for them to take hold of the blessings of the kingdom of God which got them through these, these terrible situations in other words even prophets have to live by faith to maintain the kingdom of God well isn't that what Jesus isn't that what God had to tell or teach Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now the Jews. Who are so proud of themselves because of their knowledge. The Jewish people in Nazareth. Who are so wise to understand. That the Messiah had to be born of a virgin. The virgin birth in their eyes. The virgin birth in what they think is right had to have been something where the mother of the Messiah would never be married, would never have an opportunity to have other children in her life. They've got this fixed in their imagination that the virgin birth has to be just like this. But it didn't. God didn't punish Mary for being the biological mother of Jesus by refusing to allow her to live a normal life. And because the people in Nazareth considered themselves so smart and so wise, they missed out on every good thing that God had planned for them within their city. They know they've been dissed and that's why they got so upset. All they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him into the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way 
and he came down to Capernaum. Go back where you get results. He came, they came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine. You see a pattern here, folks? They were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. What a word is this? Notice how they associate the, the results, the miraculous results of healing and deliverance with the words that he spoke. And the reason for that is because Jesus is not saying, now I'm the Messiah, so I'll do special things, but don't try this at home. Instead, Jesus is teaching that man was given authority, and he's a man. And so the exercise of his authority is something over sickness and disease and evil spirits is something that they could do as well. Now, folks, if that were not true, he would have gotten no results from his disciples, either the 12 or the 70. If the things that Jesus did were exclusive to him being the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Son of God, then how could have any of his other disciples got results? And the disciples were not the only ones that got results. There are several places in the Bible where it tells us of people during Jesus' ministry that went out and cast out devils to, from other people after they heard him and heard his teaching. In one case, the disciples came to him and said, Master, you've got to stop this. There's two people out there that are casting out devils in your name. And Jesus said, why would I want to stop them? Who is not against us is for us. Now, how did people gain this place to be able to enter into, at least in a measure, these supernatural things, these miraculous things and results? His doctrine produced fruit. His doctrine produced results. For people, that, at least in this case, two people that we never even knew the names of. Verse 37, and the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. And he arose out of the synagogues and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. 
And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them, suffering them not to speak, for they knew not that he was the Christ. Notice that this exhibition of faith that took place in Capernaum, Capernaum, when he first came back in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, went to Nazareth, was rejected at Nazareth, came back to Capernaum. The results that he got there were not the results of people believing that he was the Messiah. And whenever the evil spirits would speak up and identify him as the Christ or the Messiah, he'd shut them down. Now, if Jesus' purpose on the earth was to prove that he was the Messiah, then why is he telling people not to tell? The works were not done because Jesus had power that only the Messiah has. The results that were taking place in people outside of Jesus and his inner circle were the result of people taking at face value and believing and mixing faith with the fact that man has been given authority on the earth over sickness and disease and evil spirits. Let's add Mark chapter 6 to this story. Verse 1, and he went out from thence and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence has this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Now the works that were done were not done in their city. They were done in Capernaum. Jesus identifies Capernaum as the place that he went before Nazareth. And got results. So they said, from whence has this man these things? They're astonished by the things that they heard. What wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Are these not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. They knew he'd done the works in Capernaum. They knew he had gotten miracle results. But because what they knew about his heritage, because of what they knew that he lived a normal life among them in Nazareth, they thought that he could not be the Messiah. But even if they didn't believe him in the, as being the Messiah, they still could have received the supernatural results that man's authority would bring them over sickness and disease. Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work. Now please notice that the word there is could, not would. See, if it says that he would not, then that would indicate to us that even though he had the power to cast out evil spirits or to heal the sick, to dislodge disease from the hearers, 
But instead it says he could not, meaning his power was limited. Now by that, we don't mean his power was limited by God. Because the Bible says Jesus had the spirit without measure. But their unbelief is what caused the, the lack of ability to heal the sick inside of Nazareth. And he could there do no mighty work. Save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks, a few folks with minor ailments, according to Divine's Depository Dictionary of New Testament words. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Now what's going to fix this problem? The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So he went round about the villages teaching. He goes back to teaching that man has authority on the earth. He goes back to what we read in Luke chapter 4. It identifies what he taught there. He taught from Isaiah's prophecy about what he was anointed to do. Now, folks, what's the difference between Capernaum, where he got supernatural results, mega results, miracle results, and Nazareth, where he was unable to do anything to help them? We would have to conclude the very fact of the matter that Jesus went to Nazareth, that God wanted to bless those people. The anointed one was sent to the city of Nazareth, just like the anointed one was sent to the city of Capernaum. God didn't care about the people in Capernaum more than he did in Nazareth. And the very fact that Jesus goes to Nazareth is proof that God wanted him to ex express his will that they be healed. And to take to them the power of God, which would deliver them and heal their bodies. So what's the difference? We don't see in Capernaum where there was some great effort or response that this is the Christ. In fact, Jesus talks about himself in both accounts as being a prophet. Now, a prophet is just one who speaks by God or speaks for God to the people. So in Capernaum, we don't see some overwhelming faith exercised that Jesus is the Messiah. They just simply accepted the fact that he was anointed by God to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted, to preach, recovering of, uh, of the, preach deliverance to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. They believed him when he said that. And they got miracle results. The miracle results that God wanted for every city that Jesus went to. The miracle results that he wanted for Nazareth as well. But that were thwarted by the unbelief of the people.
Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. The beginning of Jesus' ministry again in Matthew's account. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed unto Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulon and Nephthalim, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon and the land of Nephthalim, by way of the sea beyond Jordan, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, these people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven. He's not preaching that he's the Messiah. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus identifies that in what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. A part of the Lord's Prayer is, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God wanted the same results for them when they were here on the earth as he wants for everybody when they get to heaven. And why wouldn't he? He never changes. So how could his plan or purpose or will for man be different here on the earth than it will be for him when he gets in heaven. We know there's no sickness and disease in heaven. We know there's nothing that can hurt or harm mankind in heaven. Heaven is a perfect place. Now, folks, if sickness and disease is used by God to teach us or to bring us into some great spiritual depth, then we'd have to expect sickness and disease to be in heaven as well. If poverty was God's tool to teach us something or bring us into some deeper relationship with him, then we would be robbed of something by not having it in heaven as well. So when Jesus begins to preach, he's preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It tells us about Jesus picking his disciples, several of them anyway. And verse 23, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that God wants the same thing for you here on the earth that he wants for you in heaven. And healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments. And those which were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic and those which had the palsy and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. Now chapter 5, he's in the same place and he begins preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It goes from chapter 5 through chapter 6 to chapter 7. And it concludes with verse 28. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. 
For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now notice the word one is in italics here. This looks very similar to what we just read or started off with in Mark chapter 1. But the Greek for this phrase, as one that had authority, is exactly the same as what we saw in, first, in Mark chapter 1. It comes from the two Greek words, how and to hold. He taught them how to hold authority. That means that everything in the Sermon on the Mount and whatever else he said beyond what's recorded in the Sermon on the Mount was pointing toward man having authority in this earth. If we backed up a little bit in chapter 7 to where Jesus tells the story or the parable of the man who builds his house on the rock, contrasting that with the one who builds his house on the sand, we see from that passage that Jesus tells people that your attention to the word, your commitment to put the word of God first place in your life is the exercise of authority that will either keep you from being washed out when trouble comes or opens the door to calamity and circumstance. It came to pass when, they, when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority. He taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Now turn with me to chapter 8. It tells us the story of the leper that comes to Jesus and says, I know that you can heal me. I'm convinced of your power over sickness and disease but I'm not sure if you will heal me. Jesus immediately stretched forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And he said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way and show thyself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto him. Jesus is not drawing attention to himself. He doesn't say go to the temple and gather a big crowd that will hear you when you offer your gift that's required by the law of Moses and tell that I'm the Messiah. Instead, he says, don't tell anybody about this. Just make sure you obey what the law of Moses says to do for the leper who's cleansed. Verse 5, and when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now we've seen that Jesus has taught a lot in Capernaum. And a lot of what he's taught in Capernaum has astonished the hearers. Because he taught them that man had authority and here's how it works. Well, what is that going to produce? Or maybe a better question is, what does Jesus want it to produce? The centurion is a great example. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal it. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof, 
but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. We saw in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the city of Nazareth. Now here he is marveling at the centurion's great faith. Now folks, wouldn't it stand to reason that what we have shared with us in three of the gospel accounts, John doesn't tell us so much about the beginning of Jesus' ministry because he fills in the gaps in other places rather than duplicating the three gospels that were already written. But in all three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that Jesus started off in Capernaum and that Capernaum accepted what he had to say and the teaching. They were astonished at his doctrine, but they accepted it. And it brought them miraculous healing results. It brought about the casting out of certain evil spirits from certain ones. And so if we see over and over and over again that the Bible tells us that Jesus taught that man had authority rather than teaching that he is the Redeemer and he is the Messiah, then people of Capernaum, like this centurion, which one of the other gospel accounts says that he built the synagogue in, in Capernaum for the Jews. Now remember the Old Testament blessing God gave to Abraham. I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. So the centurion, even though he's not a Jew, because he has blessed the children of Israel in that city and in that town by building the synagogue for them, Jesus recognizes that this is a man, even though he's outside the Jewish people, here's somebody that God promised to help. And he turns out to be the greatest faith that Jesus has seen, at least up until that point in time in his ministry. We don't know if the centurion was in some of the other meetings or services that took place in Capernaum. But we do know that he's heard about Jesus and heard Jesus teaching to the degree that he recognized the place that authority holds in this situation with his servant. So when Jesus says, I'll come to your house, he says, there's no need. I understand authority. In other words, I understand how to hold authority. The very thing that Jesus had been teaching and that brought about the miraculous results that he had gotten in Capernaum. Remember in Nazareth, in Mark chapter 6, he tries to counter a man and to overcome the unbelief of the people by teaching in the synagogues. Well, I wonder what he taught in the synagogues. 
He taught that man had authority. Here's a man that has heard enough about Jesus' teaching to recognize and to understand how to hold the authority that he has. He has authority over the servant in his house. So all he needs is Jesus to speak the word and his servant will be healed. So Jesus marvels and says, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Folks, I want you to turn with me now to Luke chapter 10. Verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. Therefore he said unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes and salute no man by the way. And to whatsoever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn unto you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things which are, as are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now, folks, there is no way, absolutely no way, that anybody with any degree of intelligence and that are honest could possibly dis, uh, distinguish or separate healing for the physical body from the kingdom of God. You've got to add to or take away from the Bible to get there. He said, and heal the sick in the cities that will receive you. Heal the sick that are therein and say, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. It's impossible for healing to not be a part of the kingdom of God. And by that I mean where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. It's impossible to take these scriptures at face value and account them as truth and not come up with the conclusion that healing is part of the kingdom of God. Healing is part of what Jesus paid the price for. Jesus sacrificed himself to bring the kingdom of God to the earth, didn't he? To usher in the kingdom of God. It cannot be more simply and directly and obviously made than these scriptures right here. Heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Healing proves that the kingdom of God is in effect. But into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you not, 
Go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be you sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. In other words, unbelief of the city that they go to, just like unbelief in the city of Nazareth, can short-circuit the power of God, can stop the power of God from accomplishing its purpose. Now, folks, that sounds sacrilegious, to some at least, because their idea is God's all-powerful and God can do anything. So how could we say that the unbelief of an individual, or in Nazareth's case, a city, would keep the kingdom of God from coming in effect to that city. Well, there's only one answer to that, and that is because man has authority on the earth and not God. Since man has authority, it depends on whether man accepts or rejects the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom that these 70 went with. But even if they reject you, Jesus said, make sure to tell them the kingdom of God, the power of God to heal, to save, to deliver, came to you, but you rejected. In other words, he's saying, let them know. Make sure that they understand that God did his part. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Then he pronounces certain curses. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For as the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they shall have a great while also repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which, thou, which art exalted to heaven... Shall thou be thrust down to hell? He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despises me, and he that despises me despises him that sent me. Even in these cities where great miracles were done, they did not take hold of Jesus' teaching to the to the uh, the point of it making a, a difference in their own lives. They took advantage of the healing power of God that came. They took advantage of the miracles that Jesus performed. But it didn't make a change in their hearts. And that's why Jesus curses these places. Verse 17. And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now we just read what Jesus had commissioned them to do. And there's not one word mentioned about casting out evil spirits. But these 70 along with the 12 had seen Jesus cast out evil spirits with his word. And so when they came upon in these different cities that they went to, when they came upon people that were bound by evil spirits, they did the same thing that they'd seen Jesus do and the evil spirits departed from those bodies. And Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, he doesn't mean that they fell when the disciples of the 70 used the authority that he had given them. He means Satan was a defeated foe before he ever got to the earth. 
Satan was thrown out of heaven. His war against God with a third of the angels was a huge failure. And he was cast into the earth as a defeated foe. Verse 19, behold, I give unto you authority. It says the word power, but it's really the word authority. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. This is a different word. It means ability of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now that's usually where we stop reading the story. But I want to keep going for a little bit and, and show you something. This is something that just blesses my heart. Verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for, it soon, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son. And he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned unto his disciples and said privately. He singles them out here, folks. And he says to them privately, Blessed are, your, are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. In other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you now know the dirty little secret that man has authority on the earth. I don't know why I call it a dirty secret. It's not a secret. or not a dirty secret. <laughs> but he says to them, the ones that think themselves so wise, like the ones in Nazareth, that rejected Jesus, and the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom that he made there. Those that consider themselves so wise as to figure out the, God, the plan of God. They're not the ones that came up with this powerful result. The ones who get the powerful result just simply accept that the word of God is true and then act on it. And that belongs to you. That's what the centurion did in Matthew chapter 8 that caused Jesus to marvel at great faith. I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to marvel at my faith. Remember, Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. And greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. You are created to have authority. You are not created to ever bow under the circumstances of life. We have authority over sickness and disease, which includes real sickness and disease along with coronavirus. You have authority over fear. No matter where the fear comes from, 
no matter what news outlet tries to promote it. You are created to have authority over fear instead of being bowed under like the rest of the world is. You have authority and you are created to have authority over every aspect of life no matter what the government tries to do to control you. Folks, we need to make sure that faith is not something that we relegate to the private spiritual lives, to our private spiritual lives. But the faith will overcome anything and ungodly thing that's done in the public sector as well as the private sector. Jesus said of earthly kingdoms, those that are in authority exercise lordship or rule over you. But God never intended for us to be subject to any rule that's based on the circumstances of life. If there was ever a time in this world that we needed our faith to work in a public setting along with the private setting, that's now. Everything we see going on in the world around us is an attempt to exercise control over you and me. There may be things that we can't change, but we can certainly live above them. The Bible says at the end that men will wax worse and worse. We can't, we can't change that even through our prayers. But that doesn't mean we have to be held bound to it. As Jesus preached in Nazareth and every other city he went to for the first time, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us, for he has anointed us to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Folks, that never changes no matter what happens around us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed to see that Jesus rejoiced over the 70 holding and executing the authority that you gave them over sin, sickness, and disease. We rejoice too, Father, because your word has revealed it to us. We see the importance of us using and exercising our authority over the earth.
So we declare that because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, we resist sin, sickness, and poverty. And every work of the devil in every area of our lives. We declare that the name of Jesus is greater than any other name in heaven, earth, or hell. And we thank you, Father, that our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We thank you, Father, that through Jesus you've given us all good things. We declare that the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. We declare, Father, that no matter what laws are made to hinder us or to bind us, your word is greater and your power will deliver us. Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for revealing it to us. And we declare that through you, we are always victorious. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.